0: Hello and welcome to May I Have This Dance, a podcast from the Human Awareness Institute, or HI, Among Friends.
1: We're here because we love having real, rich, juicy conversations with people. We strip down with the people we interview, figuratively and only sometimes literally, to the undercurrent of what it means to be human through the lens of love, intimacy, and sexuality.
0: As an organization, HI is a place to explore and embrace our humanness. Obviously, a podcast can't replace our workshops, but we do hope that in these interviews, you're able to catch a glimpse of who we are and what we do.
1: Shall we get started with the interview?
0: Let's do it. Hello, and welcome to the final episode of our season. In this one, I'm interviewing Dr. Alison Ash, or Ali, among friends. She runs a number of fantastic workshops here in the Bay Area on various aspects of sexuality, even just her list of workshop titles on her website is enough to make me a little hot under the collar, not gonna lie. With names like Cultivating Your Pleasure, How To Be A Feminist In The Bedroom and How To Eat Pussy Like A Champ, how could you say no? Well, actually, saying no is one of the powerful other things that she teaches. I've met Ali a couple of times and have done some of her workshops, but it wasn't until this interview that I felt I really clicked with her. It was a wonderful conversation and we get into some fantastic depth. I can't wait to share it with you. Listen to the episode and then check out Ali's website on turnon.love if you want to learn more. So I'd love to start by asking you what your name is and what uh, pronouns you prefer, please.
1: Sure. My name is Dr. Allison Ash, but everybody calls me Ali and I use she, her pronouns, but i am fine with any really. Awesome.
0: Uh, Whereabouts do you call home?
1: San Francisco currently though I'm moving to Oakland but I think Bay Area is definitely home for me for for the foreseeable future. I just love it here.
0: Yeah I'm based in Oakland. I keep trying to recruit people to
1: join me. (laughs) (laughs) I bounce all over the Bay but the Bay is definitely home.
0: I'm going to jump straight into this. I've actually been to a couple of your workshops and I absolutely love the work you do. Uh, Can you say a little bit about uh, what you do and who you do it for?
1: Sure. Yes. So I am a sex and intimacy coach and educator. And so what that means is I offer coaching for individuals, couples, and groups, helping them learn how to cultivate and maintain physical, sexual, and emotional intimacy. And then I also craft a wide range of workshops. I think I have about 15 I'm currently offering as well as retreats geared towards helping folks with those same uh, uh, skills and learning new perspectives and tools so that they can have the kinds of sexual interactions and romantic relationships that they want. And I also was recently hired by Stanford, so I'll be teaching sexual and emotional intimacy skills there as well in January. What, uh, What do you think draws people to come to your workshops? we're all really facing this challenging bind where we're supposed to know how to create intimacy, yet most of us are not taught how to do that. If we're lucky, we might learn that in our family systems, but we're probably learning more physical and emotional intimacy, not sexual intimacy. And we are very rarely learning this at school. And if we are learning at school, we're probably learning more around uh, safer sex practices, rather than actual intimacy skills and so i work with so many adults that are just hungry for this information because they're finding that they're either not able to acquire or maintain the kind of relationships that they want or have the kind of sex that they're craving and they don't know where to go to for this information because unfortunately it's still a little taboo to talk about it and it's even more taboo to admit the areas that we feel ignorant, or unclear, or inexperienced, or insecure, or unsure, or, or ashamed, right?
0: Do you? So obviously, you're a little bit in this world, and the world, uh, the work you're about to start doing with Stanford sounds really helpful in that world. Do you think there's hope? Because I remember, Maisak um, said was basically like, "Here's how you make babies, and here's how you prevent babies." Mm-hmm. And I hear that um, recently, they're actually starting to implement a little bit more consent because god forbid they would they would teach that earlier um but i feel like actual enjoyment and pleasure is is taught extremely rarely is that is that starting to change you think
1: you know it's hard to speak about broader trends i'm very much in a bay area bubble Um, but there has been research done that shows that when girls are taught about pleasure in a sex positive way they actually delay first sexual experience the age at which they lose their virginity or have their first sexual encounter i'm not a huge fan of that phrase lose virginity right yeah um and they report more positive experiences when they do have their first sexual encounter and i can speak from personal experience i remember my father was, um, I was 16. My boyfriend was a couple years older. He was in college. I was going to go visit him for the weekend. It was our one year anniversary. I'm sure my father sensed what was coming. And he began what I assumed was the talk. And I remember interrupting him and saying, dad, 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 I know all about birth control and condoms. And he interrupted back and he said, "Allie, that that's not what I was going to say. What I wanted to tell you is that You can only have your first experience once, and I hope that you make it really special. And there was something so beautiful about that interaction, because there's this implicit permission that he gave me to enjoy myself. And that is one of those memories that I will forever cherish, because he trusted me to make a decision that was in my own best interest. And, and and I did have an incredible first experience. That sounds
0: really kind of um, insightful and grown up. I think those it, it is pretty sad, I guess that those stories are pretty rare. But I'm very pleased that um, that that was something that cr- came across your radar. That that feels that feels really beautiful.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah.
0: So, um, Ali, you do a lot of really personal work with with your clients, and uh, both in a group setting and in a one to one setting. And what I was really wondering about was, what is the thing that's most surprised you about what you've learned about this process?
1: Well, I think what's so powerful about intimacy is that it's mutual shared vulnerability. That's how we create intimacy. It's this, uh, I love the mnemonic device, into me you see.
0: That is beautiful, yeah.
1: And so when I'm working with my clients, whether it's in a workshop setting or with individuals or couples or groups, I am creating intimacy with them. Intimacy is a relational skill. It's not something that we can learn just from a book or even a podcast. We learn it in relationship with other people. And so that's how my sex and intimacy coaching practice might vary and differ from traditional psychotherapy uh, where um, they might not want to be creating those kinds of connections. You know, I'm very much focused on helping my clients learn the skills that they don't know by helping them practice. So clothes stay on and there are other boundaries that we create so that everybody feels really safe. And of course, learning how to identify and name boundaries is a vital part of the work. But teaching skills like how to get out of your head and into your body, how to flirt or know when somebody's flirting with you, how to escalate and de-escalate, how to attune to somebody, how to repair when feelings get hurt. Um, All of these skills are so much easier to learn and integrate when you're doing it in real time with somebody, rather than just trying to recount your memories and interpretations of your experiences with other people. So every obstacle, every um, insecurity, every area for growth, every piece of shame that can be a barrier in my client's day-to-day lives come up in real time in session with me and then we can work with it in that way which i find is a lot more powerful
0: so when you say experiential does that mean you role play things with people or how, how does that actually play out
1: yep sometimes we're role playing um i have various exercises that we do i give lots of Homework assignments so that my clients can integrate the material or learn how, um, like, observe other people. So, for example, one thing that I work with my clients on is understanding how they're being perceived by other people. Are they being perceived as kind of reserved and containing their desire and a little bit um, closed off, and folks aren't able to read their interest, or maybe are they kind of like spilling their desire and it's Feeling like really intense and, and maybe even invasive or it's um, overwhelming for people. And so I help them learn how to recognize what their energy is like in part by giving real time feedback of what it's like to be in connection with them teaching them how to be with their desire in a way that feels really yummy for other people, and then giving them homework assignments to go out and observe and notice other people in the world and see if they can start to observe the body language and the facial expressions that would be the cues of how people are relating to their desires so they can continue to integrate the material, right? So it's this very multifaceted approach where we're looking at it from a sociological lens and understanding how society is structured to create kinds of conditions that make it hard for us. We're looking at an interpersonal level of what's happening between me and my clients, we're looking at individual level, at my client's history and past and all of their experiences that might um, be a part of the story. And we're combining all of those um, dimensions so that we can really understand how to better create intimacy because the obstacles can come from all of those levels, right? We can have shame from our uh, our, our individual experiences we can, that can then make it harder to interact with other people. And the root of that shame could be some of the messages that we've gotten from society about what it means to be a man or a woman or what sex is supposed to look like or any of the other shoulds that we adopt because of how we've been socialized.
0: Yeah. I feel like shame healing in particular is a really big part of people being able to uh open up to their to themselves and what they actually want from from sexuality, but also from a interpersonal thing, right? If if you're if you're scared of how somebody will react to something you want to ask for, that is a really scary and and, and uncertain place to be.
1: That's exactly right. I have to say that I'm working with shame with every single client that I have. There is not a single person that I have met that doesn't have shame in some way, shape, or form around their experiences of intimacy and connection. And that could be about desires, it could be about their boundaries, it could be about their past experiences, or their lack of experiences. It could be about um, uh, ways that they've been told that they're not enough, or been told that they're too much, or some confusing combination of the two. Um, You know, it's just a very common experience for us to make meaning of our experiences that make our inner critic the expert, right? Because the reason why we feel shame is because we don't want to be excommunicated from the tribe right we're humans we're interdependent beings we cannot survive on our own and so the humans who felt shame were more likely to survive because they were more likely to be included in the tribe and so we've actually developed uh, a resistance an aversion to being shame shame is a physically painful experience we feel it uncomfortably in our bodies and so, because we don't want to be shamed by others, we develop the voice of our inner critic when we're little kids as the first line of defense. We decide we'll shame ourselves first to keep ourselves in line so that other people don't shame us because we don't want to experience this how painful and scary it is to be shamed. And then our inner critics just run with it. And so by the time I'm working with clients, often it's unwinding the shame of the inner critic much more than the shame that they're actually experiencing from other people.
0: You speak about all of this with such deep um, empathy and understanding, and it kind of hints to me that you've had quite a journey to get to where you are today as well. Um, Can you share something about what led you to start this work and what made you excited about it? Sure,
1: yeah. Well, I will say that I grew up in a family where there there wasn't a lot of intimacy modeled. I think there's a lot of trauma in my lineage. And um, I grew up not really feeling like I had the skills to have the kinds of relationships that I wanted. I struggled to belong. I was teased. I always felt like an outsider. Um, And I was always hungry for connection and for intimacy, and unsure how to get it, and unsure why it felt so unavailable to me. And I am so grateful that I moved to the Bay Area, where there's such an abundance of incredible teachers and mentors and healers. And I began an incredible journey into self-growth and uh, into understanding and obtaining some of those relational and life skills that I feel like I didn't get growing up. And I think that whenever you learn something that other people just absorb naturally, you kind of see the water that everybody else is swimming in. And it helps you explain it in a way to other people who also didn't get those skills. Um, And it also has given me a deep, deep capacity to empathize with my clients and to relate and to show them that you can learn these skills you can start to have the kinds of relationships that you want that that there is no too late uh it's there's no uh, what's the phrase Uh, uh oh no you can't teach an old dog new tricks i just don't buy that at all that's not true and so i love getting to to relate with my clients and help show them that um the struggle is real i get it but also the ability to overcome it is is also there too. Yeah.
0: And I think that is actually an interesting point to make because I'm always really worried. So when I started a bunch of this work I was like oh my god I'm about to climb the world's tallest mountain I have no footholds I don't even know where to begin why do I even bother kind of thought pattern. And then you make a couple of tiny steps forward and you learn a couple of techniques and you get some movement and there is there's deep beauty in being able to invite um those closest to you, to you to be more intimate, but actually more importantly in what I like to refer to as casual intimacy, you know, ha- having heart open conversation with less close friends and less, uh, maybe even coworkers and letting them into a space and saying, Hey, I'm here for you to have real conversation. We don't just have to talk about the weather or, or Trump.
1: <laughs> That's right. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love that casual intimacy. Yeah. And it's actually
0: gotten to a point where, you know, even some of my from, uh, my regular friends, I'm like, hey, would it be okay if we hugged? Can we be closer, like, watching this TV show? Can can we, I don't know, hold hands or sit, sit against each other? Just for this moment of, like, um, a, yeah, casual intimacy and just letting, kind of normalizing touch a little bit more in a non-sexual, non-creepy way. Um, I think that's been a really powerful uh, step in the right direction.
1: I love that. Yeah. And what I would name that is, is physical intimacy, right? Which is this sense of touch, of uh, that co-regulation that can happen through touch, um, the closeness that it it can create, but touch that's without a sexual or maybe even a sensual charge. Um, It's the kind of touch that you would give a child or a grandparent or a colleague or a friend, right? And I love the normalization of that. It's, it's so powerful. It's, incredibly healing it is the most regulating thing for the nervous system Um, and so many people are deprived of touch actually I work with a lot of clients who on a day-to-day basis go without any touch and it just breaks my heart yeah no absolutely
0: you just used a term earlier that I would like to talk a little bit more about Um, you said co-regulation can you say what you mean by that and why you think it's important Mm -hmm.
1: Sure. Although we're going to start to get out into geek out territory. (laughs) I love it. Let's do it. Okay. So we're going to geek out a little bit, but I'm going to try and keep it main, like streamlined here for you. Um, Co-regulation is this really important process of soothing your nervous system. And we can do that through self-soothing. So self-regulation and through co-regulation soothing with other people. And actually babies, humans are taught how to co-regulate first. When we're born, uh, we don't know how to soothe our nervous systems, and when we're held by our mothers or our caregivers, um, and we're held against their heart and their chest, and they have a regulated nervous system, it actually teaches babies how to so- how to regulate and that process is called co-regulation and when done effectively those babies grow up and learn how to also self-regulate and self-soothe so this is where the concept of self-care comes in but I have to tell you this whole idea that you have to be able to soothe yourself or love yourself before anybody else will love you is just Scientifically untrue, we need to have these experiences of being loved, of being soothed, of being co-regulated, to know that we're worthy of love and to know how to self-soothe and self-regulate. And so I am working with various clients who might have a harder time co-regulating. And so we're going to work on building that capacity for them to be soothed in connection with other people. And I might be working with clients who have a harder time self-soothing. And so I'm going to help them learn how to start to regulate their nervous system and bring that soothing in in a way that feels more autonomous and empowering for them to do on their own. Yeah, that makes sense.
0: You um you mentioned something interesting. so. The, the phrase, you have to love yourself before others can love you, is is thrown around a lot. And what I just heard you say is that you don't dis- that you don't agree with that. Is that right?
1: I wholeheartedly do not agree with it.
0: That's amazing. Uh, can you say more? Why do you not think that is uh, a, a true thing? And why do you think people are uh, walking down the wrong path if they're trying to figure that side so- so out first?
1: Yeah, I, I disagree with that because it's scientifically unproven. Right? Babies that are born, that even if they're nourished, if they are not touched, if they don't have experiences of being loved, they will die. Right? We need to, we're interdependent beings. We need to experience love to understand what love is. Right. If if we um, don't have that experience of being told and modeled and even with our touch and with energetic exchange, being told that we are worthy, that we belong, that we have a right to exist, we need to receive these messages when we are born and when we grow up to know that this is our truth as an adult. And so, so many of my clients who did not have these direct experiences of being loved, that's my job. My job is to love them, to show them that they are worthy of being loved, which is not an intellectual concept. That's an experience that they have to feel in their bodies and in their hearts, you know? And so it's just heartbreaking for me, for people who are out there that have gone through so much trauma or so much neglect to think that they're the cause of why they're still not experiencing any love. And that's just the second arrow. That's that's you know the the trauma on top of the trauma.
0: Yeah. I love how you operate in a space that um is often pretty woo, you know. <laughs> there's a lot of uh, spiritualism, there's a lot of um energies and, and but you are talking about this from both sides, right? I sense that you are a a deeply connected person, but that you're also very scientifically driven. Um, does those two things ever strike you as a as a conflict, or do they work well hand in hand?
1: It's really interesting that you ask me that right now. I feel like I'm in the um, the middle of a bit of a spiritual awakening, and so it's a vulnerable question and one that I'm still happy to discuss. But I wanted to name that it feels it feels vulnerable. Um, I became an atheist at ten, and I'm an academic. I have always been and identified as um an intellect as um, you know, certainly as a scientist um and I am in the Bay Area and I have studied Tantra and I study Buddhism and I have studied other spiritual practices modalities and um and I know that whether or not I believe in anybody's spiritual practice or faith that it can be a huge source of comfort, a source of growth and learning, a source of community. And also, I have to say that I think science can learn a lot from some of these transformational and spiritual communities around how to integrate mind and body. And see the mind-body connection. Yeah. How to relate to our emotions and our feelings. And how to really understand how they live somatically in our body. Um, how to understand touch and intimacy and the ways that we can incorporate that for healing. I, I wish that we could integrate more of a scientific and a spiritual approach, because I think that each has their own unique offerings. And when it comes to intimacy, it's not purely scientific, it's not all quantifiable. There is the unknown aspect to connection. And if people find that answer in a spiritual lens, then I want to support that.
0: And I guess the other angle into that is that a lot of challenges you run into, or a lot of kind of to be fair, anything to do with love, intimacy, or sexuality, you can um, you can think about a lot of these things with your brain and intellectualize a lot of it. But really, where it hits you is in the emotional realm. And I feel like mm-hmm. science has a lot of uh, research into emotions and and how to regulate them. But it feels like never the twain shall meet a lot of the time, right? You're either doing a purely academic study and you're trying to figure out, you're trying to put words to what is essentially ephemeral. Or you're trying to feel your way through it and then suddenly you're completely at a loss for words. Or anyway, that's my experience of it. Um, and I find I it really interesting that you are yeah, carving out the intersection between the two. I think that's a really powerful space to be And I'm very glad that you're uh, spearheading some of that that research and some of that teaching. Well,
1: thank you. I mean, I think it's, it's undeniable that what we think affects our body and our body affects our thoughts. And also that our sensations and our emotions are the language of the body and that we're not taught how to interpret it. In fact, we're taught to uh, devalue the wisdom of the body. Uh, we live in a society that values the rational thinking, logical brain. And there is a lot of benefit from being rational and logical and following our thoughts, but not at the cost of ignoring our intuition and the wisdom of the body. And of course, if we are not attuned to our sensations and our emotions, that's directly going to impact our capacity to feel pleasure and to create intimacy. Because pleasure lives in the body, desire lives in the body. And if we're not if we're not alive and really um, awake to the sensations and to the subtlety and the range and the intensity and the, the good and the bad and the comfortable and the uncomfortable, if we're not really open to all of that, that's going to inhibit without a doubt, our capacity to feel the the full range of pleasure that, that's available to us.
0: Do you sometimes catch yourself being in your brain? And how do you bring yourself back into your body?
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> I get stuck in my head all the time. Same. Um, though I will say that for me, sex, whether with someone else or through masturbation, was my first uh, way of meditating. And I, before I even knew anything about meditating, um, it has been a way for me to get out of my head and focus on the sensations in my body. And it has always been an embodiment meditation for me. Um, I find that when I'm in my head is more in, in interpersonal interactions. It might be in the flirting and the escalating. Often I'm in my head. Um, I get awkward in groups. I can be in my head in, in those kinds of social situations as well. And what I, uh, what I try and do is do some breath work. So I'll do uh, breathing where my exhale is twice as long as my inhale. That's really regulating for my nervous system. Um, I will do a body scan and see what kind of sensations I can track in my body. I might stretch or tense or un- and relax certain muscles so that I can start to feel my body again. Um sometimes I will name it, especially if I'm in a situation where that feels safe. I'll say, I'm noticing I'm in my head right now, and I'd like to be more in my body. Do you think that we could cuddle, or you could scratch my back, or maybe we could talk about it? Ma'am,
0: you're at the DMV. This is not appropriate. Right, right. <laughs> okay, maybe, maybe not at the DMV, but... <laughs> um, I think it's that is a really beautiful um, thing to be able to name with somebody you you care about, and just actually be able to say, "Hey, you know what? I've just caught myself. Is it okay if we change that?"
1: Yeah,
0: Um, that happens way too too rarely in, in general,
1: right? And then it becomes this isolating thing where you're more and more in your head because now you're in your in your head that you're in your. I'm sorry. Now you're in your head because you're in your head, right? So it becomes it becomes this intensifying loop and. Uh, and the connection is the way out. So naming the elephant in the room is an opportunity to shift the dynamic. I just struck
0: by something. I think most of the people I know, and I definitely fall in that category. And you just mentioned it yourself is you spend a lot of time in your head and not enough time in your body. Have you come across people who are the other way around who spend most of their time in the, in their bodies and any emotional realm and they struggle to get to their head?
1: That's an interesting question.
0: Yeah, I just thought of that. I don't think I know anybody like that, but I would love to meet that
1: person. (laughs) I mean, we live in tech heavy Bay Area, you know, so I think that we're less likely to encounter somebody like that here than maybe in other parts of the world. Um,
0: If I were to get on an airplane, where should I go?
1: (laughs) Someplace where where there's no technology and no media (laughs) and time. Right, because yeah. I think that you know, it takes time to learn how to be with the sensations and to be with the 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 slowing down that that requires.
0: Hey, Ali, I was I was wondering. You've spoken such with such beautiful clarity about uh, love and your journey in this space, and I was wondering, do you have like a defining figure who who has helped you shape that and and how did that happen?
1: I do. And, um, it's not a human, it's a cat. (laughs) That is perfect. Um, my, my former cat Gus was, um, probably my first secure attachment in my life. And certainly my closest buddy, I had him through college and all of my major transitions and moves and breakups And one night I came home late and he was meowing for attention and we always had a little ritual of how we would greet each other and I wanted to get Game of Thrones buffing on the TV so I had my back to him uh, for a few moments to do that before I turned my attention to him and um, I heard him make this very horrible noise and I turned around to see him fall over and die. And it was... One of the most traumatic experiences for me um, because not only was I losing, you know, this, this buddy that slept with me on my chest every night, that was my reason to come home, that was my, you know, secure attachment, but also any kind of illusion that I had of permanence was completely shattered. And I went into a deep existential angst where I just was so angry but also just unclear like how do you live and love in a world that all of a sudden felt so unsafe to me if I didn't have faith that you would be breathing in five minutes or that I would be breathing in five minutes how do you move forward and I remember just being devastated by this and I I realized I realized the answer um the answers to love even harder. Yes. In the face of not knowing when and how I'm going to die, I want to know that I've given this world all the love that I have to give and that I've been open to receiving all the love that's available because the thing that was so powerful about that experience was that I didn't really feel my feelings somatically in my body very intensely before that. I was a little bit uh, – I was actually very unaware of – feelings and how to process feelings and how to be with my feelings. And when Gus died, I realized why they call it heartbreak. They call it heartbreak because it feels like your heart is breaking. Like it feels like you're having a heart attack in your chest that won't go away. But I knew, I knew that I would not trade one day of that pain for one less cuddle with that cat. It was so clear to me that it was all worth it. Yeah. And the other thing that was so powerful about that experience was that I was falling in love with somebody at the same time. I was falling in love with my neighbor. It was a very, very new experience. He came over the day after my cat died, and I had three literal boxes of snot rags all over my floor. And this man picked them all up when I was in the bathroom. And I came back with a, he had an armful of my nasty tissues. And he was like, Where's your garbage can? And I just love that image because it's so representative of how willing he was to be with me in the messiness of being human and the messiness of grief. And to have that experience of being loved when I was so disheveled and unraveled and also to feel the love coming into my body, but not hiding or fading or fixing the pain of the grief that I felt, that my body could be with both love and grief at the same time and that one didn't replace the other. Woof! The two of those experiences combined just taught me so much about unconditional love, about my capacity for love, and about my dedication. I just believe that we are all here to love and be loved. This is our purpose in life.
0: I am – I'm an – in one of my past lives, I was a uh, end-of-life coach. So I did a lot of talking to people who are um, about to experience real grief and ex- experience death and uh, your own mortality and somebody else's mortality and all the bits that come with that. And somebody once told me something, and I found it really insightful, um, which was that uh, they were like, hey, grief feels a lot like love with nowhere to go. And that struck oh. me as so real, so real, right?
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: you've spent so long loving this person. And, you know, even if at some point you almost take them take them for granted, that there's just this, you know, th- there's always this this place for all this love to go. And when that person no longer exists, or in your case, the cat no longer exists, that, that love doesn't stop flowing. And it just takes on a really, a really painful, painful shape for a while.
1: Mm-hmm and it's still tender i mean it's been years and i can think about gus and feel so much love and gratitude now more than more than the pain but it's it's always going to be there right i love this concept of grief that the grief doesn't go away our experience just expands to hold it so that it doesn't feel like it takes up quite as much space
0: yeah for sure Thank you for sharing that. That's a wonderful story.
1: Thanks for asking. It's a it's an important one because it's so vital to how I move through the world.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. <sighs>
1: this has been really. Oh, please go ahead. I was just going to say how 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 much I've loved talking with you. I know earlier you said something about casual intimacy, and I just I wanted to to name that I feel like you and I have been able to cultivate such rich intimacy. Um, and I know, I, I know that you're interviewing me, but it has me just wanting to know so much more about you. And so I feel like, um, thank you for creating the space for me to open up so much. And I also just wanted to name that it has me feeling a desire to be closer to you and know more about you too. That is wonderful.
0: I mean, I love interviewing people. It's such a, it's such a fantastic excuse to, just ask questions, you know, and sometimes they go nowhere and sometimes you get these beautiful, rich conversations full of, full of insights and and things that kind of trigger in my brain and, and, and in my body. It makes me think, wow, this is, this is wonderful and exciting. Um, yeah. I think it's wonderful. Yeah. And it, and it also depends heavily on, on the, on the guest actually being, <laughs> being heart open and, and willing to participate. But, you know, it's one of those things, the, the people we invite on the show are always, are always that, right? It's, uh, I knew from the from the second I went to one of your workshops, I was like, we need to get her on this podcast. <laughs> it would be so good to, uh, to have you to, to have you involved.
1: Oh, thank you so much. That feels so good to hear. I fully receive it.
0: So I have two more questions. One is, what is the one song you can't not dance to? Oh,
1: without a doubt, Stevie Wonder, Superstition. I will be in the mo- I could be in a church. Well, I don't know if I'd hear that song in a church, but if I did, I would still get up and dance.
0: Oh my gosh, yes, same. <laughs> such a wonderful one and the red hot chili peppers version of that as well makes me like dance in a whole different way but it's oh it's so good that's true absolutely love it and finally um how can we learn more about uh what you do and what you're doing do you have a website how do people get in touch with you yep
1: my website is www.turnon.love and you can reach out to me through my website you can learn about all of my offerings and join my mailing list And if you want to get some resources, you can go to turnon.love slash free gift and there are some uh, resources available for you there as well as scattered throughout my site. So I encourage you to take a peek and reach out if I could be a support to you in any way. I really want to help save the world one orgasm at a time. Um, I think that we can uh, create a lot more pleasure and happiness and joy in this world together.
0: You just make us all come together is what you're saying.
1: <laughs> oh, that was so good. <laughs> was
0: terrible. Hey, thank you so much. Uh, I look forward to um, getting to know you more and to find out more about where the journey takes you next.
1: Yes, thank you so much. May this just be the beginning. For more information about the Human Awareness Institute or our workshops, visit our website at hi.org. That's H-A-I org.
0: Thank you so much for listening to May I Have This Dance. It was a pleasure to have you with us. See you soon. Bye-bye.